Hello, everyone, and welcome to CQ Speaks. Today, I'm joined again by poet and scholar Emilio Taviejo Peleas for the second part of our discussion on Langston Hughes. Emilio, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So today our focus is on Hughes's poem, Christ in Alabama, which was published in Contempo alongside his essay, Southern Gentlemen, White Prostitutes, Mill Owners, and Negroes. If you haven't listened to the first part of this two-part series, I recommend you do that now. It covers the essay along with some important context surrounding Hughes and his visit to Chapel Hill. But as a brief refresher, Emilio, do you want to first provide some context around the poem? Yeah, in the Christ in Alabama poem, I think something that's worth mentioning definitely is the Scottsboro Boys. So, I mean, just to read from the National Museum of African American History and Culture and their website that's hosted by the Smithsonian Museum, they kind of give a quick summary as, on March 25th, 1931, nine African American teenagers were accused of raping two white women aboard a Southern Railroad freight train in Northern Alabama. Haywood Patterson, Alan Montgomery, Clarence Norris, Willie Robertson, Andy Wright, Ozzie Powell, Eugene Williams, Charlie Weems, and Roy Wright were searching for work when a racially charged fight broke out between passengers. The fight is said to have started when a young white man stepped on the hand of one of the Scottsboro boys. The young white men who were fighting were forced to exit the train. Enraged, they conjured a story of how the black men were at fault for the incident. By the time the train reached Paint Rock, Alabama, the Scottsboro Boys were met with an angry mob and charged with assault. Victoria Price and Ruby Bates, two white women who were also riding the freight train, faced charges of vagrancy and illegal sexual activity. In order to avoid these charges, they falsely accused the Scottsboro Boys of rape. Hmm. And uh, so, I mean, that and then thinking that the, the case of the Scottsboro Boys lasted more than 80 years and continues to have these kinds of strong resonances, the... Um, poem being a response to this case is really curious in terms of the fact that Victoria Price and Ruby Bates, the two white women, were being charged for vagrancy and illegal sexual activity, too. Mm -hmm. So here we see not just a demonization of black bodies, but also a disenfranchisement of women. Uh, and so there's a kind of an intersection there. Yeah. And having to say that they were raped in order to avoid these charges and themselves being punished. Yeah, and that's brought to bear in the in the prose piece explicitly. He says, and incidentally, let the mill owners of Huntsville begin to pay their women decent wages so they won't need to be prostitutes, uh, end quote. And there's a similar economic power play in the poem itself, though it's more implicit, and perhaps we'll discuss that. But I wanted to say first, I'm glad that you got the Scottsboro Boys' names out there. I don't think we did that last time, uh, and it's important, so thank you. But before we jump into the poem, I understand that you teach this poem to your undergrads, and I'm really curious about how you go about doing it. It's a difficult poem, to say the least, uh, for many reasons. So do you mind talking about how you approach this poem as an instructor? So I teach at, here at the University of North Carolina, English 105, which is a introduction to college composition course and the class itself is structured into three different units and this is kind of uh, across the board this is the way that it's taught we begin with the natural sciences and go to the social sciences and then go to the humanities and then kind of our goal is to show different epistemological practices within each of these three branches of the university and try to give students a toolbox to with which to communicate in these disciplines and kind of see how it is that knowledge is uh, produced and how knowledge is disseminated across these different modes of producing knowledge. Um, so my second unit for the social sciences is music and society. And we, I look at the relationship, or we look at it as a class because really it's the students that do most of the legwork. We look at the way that music is being used to create 
uh, notions of collective identity and notions of belonging. So uh, I begin with showing the 1996 documentary, The Last Angel of History, a film by John Acumfra about it, which is really a video essay on Afrofuturism. And it begins with the figure of George Clinton. And we can then spend some time in class talking about the mothership uh, connection and kind of what it means to take up these themes of being an alien, what it means to put, what it means to create funk music or music that's being created in a studio that's kind of an impossible music, a music that can't be indexed to a specific place, but that's pointing towards the future, and the way that funk is kind of trying to create a future that's based on blackness and a black future. Mm. And so the film also talks about Sun Ra, uh, Lee Scratch Perry, and then spends a lot of time uh, gravitating around the Detroit techno scene and the way that techno has really functioned to create a sense of collective belonging for a black Detroit and the way that music has been really quintessential or fundamental in shaping uh, Detroit's identity. So we kind of start there and then from there we move on as a class to look at uh, Jimi Hendrix's performance of the Star Spangled Banner in Woodstock 1969 and talk about what it means for Hendrix to appropriate the song and to transform it in the way that he does as both uh, an act of protest and celebration. And then uh, as we kind of weave in and out of time, we spend some time thinking about Strange Fruit, uh, Billie Holiday's rendition of Strange Fruit, and then what it means to kind of think about uh, history and belonging in terms of Strange Fruit and what it means to think about lynching and what it means for us as kind of people living in the 21st century, what it means for us to deal with this music and how this music helps us think about the past and contextualize our own present. So for me, it's a question of what is it, how does the past help us understand our present rather than how does our present help us understand our past? It's really thinking about the entangled nature of uh, time and experience. Hmm. And so when we're thinking about that part of it, since we're here at UNC, I think it's really important for us to understand the legacies and histories of the institution that we occupy. So with that, with kind of having done all of this legwork, then we spend some time, I uh, have the students look at the Black and Blue Tour, which is available to everyone online through the UNC website. If you Google UNC Black and Blue Tour, it's actually not the most robust website, but it does have a good kind of beginning uh, towards kind of thinking about the history of slavery and the way, I mean, slaves built Chapel Hill, slaves we're literally putting the foundations down on the university and there's a lot of really horrifying things like students being able at one point to rent a slave for a really kind of low price um a lot of yeah an acknowledgement of the kind of labor that black bodies have done in the way that chapel hill has really been built by black bodies and yet we don't see uh, black bodies occupying most of the seats in our classrooms. This is kind of a problem. And so thinking about Hughes's visit here is a way of really um, having a focal point with which to have many of these conversations and have students reflect upon kind of the history of the places they occupy and have them think critically about kind of what it means to be here and what it means to sit in these classrooms and the kind of the great privilege that that is, but also to really confront and reckon with the past of the university. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how we start, and it's connected to music. All the poem itself I teach, uh, before we read this one, sometimes it kind of varies semester by semester, but I've had students read uh, Hughes's I Too right next to uh, Whitman. So we kind of look at Walt Whitman, we look at Hughes, and we look at the way that they're using lyric poetry as a way of negotiating belonging, and then we have uh, more of conversations of 
lyric poetry and how it might relate to song lyrics and what it means to kind of appropriate song lyrics and sing a lyric, what it means to enjoy a song, and then when you sing it, how what kind of function that's, uh, that has, what kind of cultural work that's doing. So this is kind of the legwork that leads up to us really confronting contempo. Students are usually, I mean, they generally won't know that Hughes was on campus and they won't know about contempo. So then kind of being exposed to this also opens doors for future research. I think it's a way of stimulating a kind of uh, critical and creative muscle. So I like to have a lot of open doors for future research projects that incorporate this kind of archival material and that look at ways of negotiating with these um, everything that's kind of stored and how we might use these kinds of pieces of the past to understand our present and then our future. And I think um, Hughes's poem is really kind of good at doing that. So that, that's, how, that's kind of how we start the poem. So the, a lot of that work is done beforehand. I don't think I would be able to teach it without kind of situating it within this kind of context. And right. it's a context that's not necessarily so tightly defined or tightly bound, but there are kind of elements that help us frame or help us get an optic with which to look at the poem. So when teaching the poem in class, do you and your students discuss the use of the n-word in contemporary culture or, or its use in literature? Or how do you go about approaching that subject? Yeah, so I think always it's important with words, again, since words are so much older than us and we inhabit a kind of language that precedes us and that has a history and that has a kind of weight, it's really important for students to be mindful of that and for students to really reckon with the cultural and historical legacies of words. So we, I pull up the Oxford English Dictionary and we kind of look at how the word seems to enter the English language. The first entry of the word senses referring to people, a dark-skinned person of sub-Saharan African origin or descent, and this is from the 16th century. So it's really curious that this is the 16th century, and by the time we get to the 17th, or to the 17th century, the valence of the term changes, and now it's used by people who are not black as a hostile term of abuse or contempt. And I think that emphasizing that language matters, that language shapes matter, and that language shapes the way that we experience the world um, you know, in the beginning was the word, and so it's the word that shapes the world. So, I mean, knowing that as early as the 17th century, the word Negro has evolved to the N-word as kind of a intentionally and purposefully derogatory word, that's something, that's a kind of baggage that the word has not been able to uh, shake off. That's something that's still bound with the word. It's a word that contains a lot of poison and that it has been used to systematically disenfranchise and dehumanize black bodies. So having the word be inextricably linked with violence and brutality, a systematic violence and brutality against the black psyche and derogatory aspersions cast on black bodies, I think is really important for students to be mindful of. So before we read the poem, really emphasizing that and really having students be self-reflexive about their own positions and kind of doing some of the legwork of exclusion within Chapel Hill itself, looking at um, the histories of lynching, looking at the way that the word is used to norm and regularize and make possible this violence by dehumanizing black bodies. So a word that is used to literally strip the humanity away from a kind of person I think really uh, gives a lot of weight to when the word is then used in the poem. So I think um, 
Yeah, the I think Hughes put the word there for us as readers to reckon with it, to reckon with language, and to really think critically about the way that language shapes our world and shapes our experience in the world, and has been used to has been used as a site of violence, has been used as a tool of violence, has been used as a way of inflicting pain and traumatizing black psyches. So being really mindful, being really careful with our use of it, and being really aware of the kind of baggage that the word just can't shut off. So the use of the N-word in the poem as really foregrounding the fact that the word is so bound with violence and brutality on black psyches and the derogatory aspersions cast on black bodies. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this kind of uh, legacy of violence conjured by the word that is really kind of pointing or indexing the violence against black psyches and black bodies that is... um, felt in presence and that continues to be felt in presence today. And I think um, part of the reason for kind of reading the word and reckoning with the word is really kind of confronting our own position in our own bodies and kind of recognizing our own privilege as uh, white-skinned bodies Mm -hmm. and kind of the way that language affects us differently and inflects our experience of the world differently. And we inhabit these words which are so much older than us and we kind of live through them. And it's in our everyday situations, it's easy to forget how much weight words have and the way that that word has been kind of used to shape matters, shape ways of seeing and experiencing the world in a way that is uh, predicated on the subjection and, again, disenfranchisement of black bodies and a black experience and kind of Hughes in putting the word there is kind of forcing us to reckon and deal with these legacies. Mm. Thank you. That was incredibly well said. And I think that with all those thoughts at the forefront of our attention, it's probably a good time to hear the poem. Christ in Alabama by Langston Hughes, published in Contempo, 1931. Christ is a nigger beaten and black, oh, bare your back. Mary is his mother, Manny of the South, silence your mouth. God, his father, white master above, grant us your love. Most holy bastard of the bleeding mouth, nigger Christ on the cross of the South. I've read this poem maybe like 15 times in preparation for this podcast, and each time it sort of uh, sets the mind reeling because it's going in so many directions at once uh, in such a wonderful way, playing with form and content and voice. And hearing you read it out loud now after our brief discussion, the mind once again sets to reeling. But what's what's the direction we can, we can begin to take the poem? So equating Christ with a with a kind of person who has been systematically denied full humanity Mm -hmm. and the way that language has been the thing that has systematically denied that humanity, I think is really powerful and really... Right. And the language of religion being used to justify slavery. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think Hughes does a really interesting thing in terms of projecting the violence of that word as experienced by a black person onto the white psyche Mm. by equating it with Christ. He said later on that this poem was the thing that caused sort of more vitriol to be aimed at him than the Southern Gentleman essay where he's literally writing ad hominem attacks about the South and about Southern Gentlemen and calling it the syphilitic South. You know, this is much more sort of veiled 
but people reacted much more to the poem. There was a quote somewhere that said, it was bad enough when he called Christ a bastard, but to call him an N-word, he's gone too far. So making white people realize the, the weight of that word when it's when it's uh, placed onto an icon that they've whitewashed over the centuries. Yeah, and that has been so fundamental in the sense of Southern identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and then just like that makes me think, and I hadn't thought about this before, I'm really happy that you're uh, highlighting religion because even just Chapel Hill, right? Yeah. And based on everything that you were saying in sort of our preamble to the poem where you were talking about teaching the poem and the importance of uh, the past and the present and the presence informing our past and, and vice versa, he seems to be doing that through religion, taking the idea of Christ and making it a physical entity um, in his contemporary Alabama, um, not only points out the irony of white Christians or, quote, southern gentlemen engaging in lynching, uh, the same kind of drawn-out murderous spectacle that makes Christ's suffering so symbolic, but uh, in that first line alone, all of history is collapsed into Hughes's present uh, and then opens up from there into the past, uh, the poem's present and, and the future, which is our present, um, which is still quite bleak. Yeah, and I, I also wanted to say from the um, Julian Carr's speech at the unveiling of the confederate monument which later came to be known as silent sam Mm -hmm. which came down a few years ago now i remember the date of it exactly when it came down it was but anyways in 1913 when the daughters of the confederacy unveiled the statue and silent sam again the confederate soldier a young boy who was marching right in the center of campus in a very public and highly visible place in 1913 at the Within the speech, there's a plea to religion, and so uh, Carr says, God bless the noble women of my dear Southland, who are today as thoroughly convinced of the justice of that cause. They are guardians of the sacred honor of the departed. They will protect the memory of the hero's spirit, no less than preserve from desecration from the sand dust of his body. And this, there's constantly this plea towards uh, the blessing of God, the way of having... Um, the divine uh, possibility of kind of being in the Southland as this kind of white Southland, the Southland is being blessed by God. And then in the same speech, there's a moment where Carr describes horse whipping a black woman in front of a whole garrison station of soldiers. Mm -hmm. So even there, like there's this plea towards religion. There's this plea that we're being blessed by God and that God is ordaining us and that God is allowing us to do this. And then that being used to justify the public um, violence done against a black woman's body in front of a public. So then again, this kind of notion of spectacle and the way that this act of like horse whipping a Negro woman as the, speech says is a is so intimately bound up with this idea of lynch as a public Mm -hmm. performance of whiteness and a consolidation of a white identity around violence against the black body so in lynchings having a group of white spectators who are looking at the act happening who are taking postcards of the act and the way that it's really a performance and a performance that is kind of a sanctified that is that has god's blessing and so I, i again the poem really bringing that to the foreground and really pushing those buttons in ways that yeah that that's there already in that dedication speech in 1913 and that's uh the poem comes out in 1931 so it's not the they're mm-hmm. not that far apart and this is kind of uh the atmosphere that the words are entering into yeah there's another piece on the cover that we haven't talked about uh, which is not by hughes but it's discussing this very thing it's called to lynch by mob is as bad as to lynch by obscene hands of a lustful mob 
And it's all about how the public spectacle of lynching is being sort of transmuted into the quote-unquote legal system at the time, um, something we're all too familiar with today. Um, but there's a quote in the article that says, quote, the righteous people of the South, he's obviously being sardonic with the word righteous, but the righteous people of the South have been gradually waking up to the idea that they can save their face by taking justice out of the rude hands of the mob and putting it in the delicate hands of the lawyers and judges. And so this is also played out in the poem, um, the, depending on how you read the white master above line. You know, it might be a white man or a black man speaking to God and asking for forgiveness, or uh, another potential reading is that it's a black man pleading to one of these uh, white judges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, I mean, the, the master, and the master also being tied into when you're talking about the legal system, the, the legal ratification of slavery first and then the legal kind of acceptance of Jim Crow laws and the kind of legal norming of who is the master, um, what kind of body gets to occupy the position of the master, and then this really kind of spotlighting the patriarchal nature of law and legality itself in mm -hmm. a way here. Because even Mary the mother, Mammy of the South, is silenced, right? Um, and then Christ is beaten the one who gets to speak and the one who gets to have a voice and the one who gets to grant is then the father with the capital his, um, yeah, the white master above. So the, I, the, the word master is such a carefully selected word. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the whole poem is sort of playing, I think, with the indeterminability of who's speaking, mm, right? Like mm -hmm. our listeners obviously can't see this, but certain lines are italicized. Uh, white master above, grant us your love is italicized. So there is the question of who is saying that line. Think about Yeah, I think that's an amazing point and it makes me uh, really more cognizant of the polyphony of the poem. And then when you were saying who is speaking for the first time, it made me think that really we kind of have a chorus here mm -hmm. in what's italicized and that gets really literalized with the grant us your love. So there's a us that is speaking there. Yeah. There's kind of a group and who is the group is almost as you're saying uh, undecipherable who where it is that it's coming from who's making up the group but there's a group nonetheless it's kind of a collectivity there and the chorus makes me think about this place where different individual voices come together to create one bigger voice so the way that this poem in a way isn't really about being uttered by a single speaker it's being uttered by a community or a collectivity so that what's being inscribed on the page is not just the utterance of the poet, but is really the utterance of a uh, poetic community. So mm -hmm. it's a, a mix, a blend of voices coming together to produce the, the music, because there is a kind of, there is a musicality, there is a rhythm to it, and that uh, invocation of music as a place where our individuality becomes less important or becomes indiscernible and becomes part of this like greater greater body and then right. the bodies themselves christ being equated with the n-word then we have kind of this it's not located on a single subject but it's located on kind of like a more impersonal site of a kind of person right same thing with the mammy and that's a, not a specific one but a kind of a kind of person and so the way that these uh these figures are uh, individuated and individualized, but come out of a more impersonal... Um, Which is really fitting with a uh, Zell Ingram illustration. Yeah, and uh, the figure there with the hands up, again, to loop us back into contemporary conversations, we brought this up in our last podcast, but 
to once again have some space here allotted to the August 9th, 2014 shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, where Michael Brown was uh, shot in a public site and had the hands up, hands up, don't shoot. And so the way that the, this figure continues to hold so much uh, weight and resonance today and be this phrase, hands up, don't shoot, getting taken up by Black Lives Matter protesters mm-hmm. um, gives this... 1931 little magazine publication a kind of uncanny contemporary presence do students pick up on the contemporary weight of the poem or or how do they respond to to the poem generally yeah with a lot of silence Hmm. is that a good thing uh it isn't it isn't because i think sometimes silence is important but i also it also sometimes worries me the way that the weight and the work becomes asymmetrically distributed. So I have a lot of students of color who are really taken by the poem, who are really taken by the material more generally and kind of have a lot to say. And I think it's really important that they say it. And I really, I try to foreground student participation always and kind of have students' voices be at the at the center and kind of have students guide the discussion themselves. But I also think it's really important for white students to confront it more than they're kind of able to. I think sometimes they uh, shut down in a way that makes it a little bit difficult because mm-hmm. it's hard to see like really what what's coming across or what's not coming across or how they feel about it. And that worries me a little bit in terms of what I'm not trying to do is Uh, shame them or alienate them or isolate them and that's a difficult thing as an instructor because these things are things that are in many ways out of their control things that they have benefited from but they haven't been conscious of right and this isn't to make them kind of feel bad about being white not at all it's rather kind of uh actually think about it and even then that this category of whiteness i think Many students think like, oh, I can't really talk about race. I can't really talk about identity because I'm white and we're the kind of the dominant culture and therefore there is no culture. But there's so much diversity within whiteness itself that it's also a kind of violence to just dismiss that. I mean, if you look at the differences between Italy and Spain, there's a lot of overlap, but people have very different identities, have very really different histories. There's Mm -hmm. been a lot of different kinds of violence happening in both places. And I think a lot of students actually forget because of the way that the United States is such a new country and so young, people tend to forget their kind of deeper historical roots. And a lot of white people in particular, I think for people of color, this is something that's more present and more prevalent and in some ways more kind of there. But I think for me, it's really important for white students to kind of think about their own legacies of their family histories, to think about why their families came to the United States. And a lot of the times, families that are coming to the United States are coming because they're suffering from a lot of violence in the old world. People aren't trying to leave their homes for no reason, you know. So it's also, I think that's also a way of really um, creating empathy and creating a type of connection for white students to realize that they also come a lot of the times from families that were suffering a lot, who were looking for opportunities in the United States and who were com- kind of coming here with dreams and aspirations that weren't afforded to them or because they were being silenced for their religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. I mean, there this is a lot of, this is white history too, right. you know, and I think that just saying like, oh no, whiteness is this one thing is just as, that's just kind of a setting these easy binaries that don't really get us anywhere. I think like complicating things and really thinking 
critically about our own white pasts is something that's really, really important. So it's hard for me as an instructor sometimes to really communicate that to students and to have students be really engaged with that instead of just kind of retreating into themselves. And this is a pedagogy that I hope I can kind of, with time, we'll get we'll get a lot better, I hope. Yeah. I mean, it's a thing, experience is a thing, and I'm a new instructor, you know, I've been <laughs> teaching only for a couple of years. So. Yeah. Wow, there's so, so much there. But the first question I want to ask is, um, do you think that the seeming simplicity of the poem lends itself to some of the silence on the student's end? Because it's sort of a difficult poem. You know, poetry scares students a lot of times, and they think that they need to do a lot of analytical work, and you do need to do a lot of analytical work. But sometimes when there's not allusions jumping off the page mm. or very obvious, you know, I guess you could focus on rhyme schemes like this, but the poem is... It seems simple, you know, even though it's not, you got to start peeling away the layers. But what do you think about uh, Hughes's choice to make the poems so uh, legible? Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, such a powerful move because it, I think it does strike a lot of students, a lot of readers right in the cortex. Yeah. It's a poem of sensation, really. Um, we begin kind of like already with the body beaten in black, oh, bear your back, right? So it's already the back and it's really... It's really simple, but it's also really visceral. And the language, the way it's it's curious because it's so it's such a deep poem. It's so robust and it's doing so much heavy uh, religious, philosophical and historical work. Yet comes across in a way that's really kind of uh, legible or understandable. That's a really difficult thing to do. I think that's one of the marks of a really uh, successful poem. It's a poem that you can return to many times and get new meanings out of and kind of unpack all its intricacies but you mm -hmm. can also just kind of read it and in a certain sense not like get it but get it you know like you get what the poem is yeah, saying and it's, uh, yeah and so that's it's tricky because the, on the one hand then students might think like oh there's not much more to be said about it because the poem is saying it all and in some ways that's true but in some ways that kind of to me it's like so so then where does that take us like, right where, what, where, where do we go from there Right, I guess one would or, or could sort of just keep their head in the language. I mean, we spoke about how much work the first line is doing, and, and you mentioned uh, the impact of the word mammy, but taking just the line, mammy of the South, you know, it's doing a similar kind of work the first line is doing by equating Christ uh, with, with the N-word, um, the idea of the mammy being a, a maternal figure for the entire South. Uh, she's the mammy of the South, just as Mary is a maternal figure for, for a whole worldwide religion. So... Once again, it's leaning into these uh, into these ironies. Just one line is sort of, in a sense, almost undoing an entire religion if we're going to stake the religion on Christ-like traits. But there are these intensely compact individual lines like Mammy of the South that just hold so much substance. You know, uh, another one, look, just looking at the poem quickly, Most Holy Bastard. Yeah, the figure of the bastard. The bastard, not just because he, the kid is being born out of wedlock here, right? Because it's the black mother and, and this kind of being traced back to this whole history of violence against black women's bodies and the right. like and sexual violence against black women's bodies specifically. Um, and the, the fact that many slave masters had so many illegitimate children uh, and then those children kind of being tied to the mother and then being under the kind of jurisdiction of the slave code, being born into slavery, being slaves. There's so much historical weight there Yeah. with, with the, making this the figure and with the, the, with the word bastard. And bastard also has such a, 
a word that's really meant to slap you across the face. And the poem is slapping you across the face a lot, but I think that that most holy bastard of the bleeding mouth, that I mean, that's a, that's a big slap. Yeah, I mean, this was a big subject for Hughes, not only being multiracial, but having to wrestle with the assumed sexual violence done by uh, his great-grandfathers. His maternal great-grandparents were slaves, and his paternal great-grandparents uh, were white slave owners in Kentucky. And that's a really horrific part of our legacy and our kind of uh, cultural patrimony that we need to deal with. And again, Hughes's poem bringing us to it. So not pointing to it directly, but having it there in his poem. These kind, these kind of stories, they're all in the poem themselves. And I think that's uh, the poem itself points to so many different directions and opens itself up for mm -hmm. so much more uh, contemplation, so much more critical reflection and really kind of... Um, yeah, the historical, philosophical, and aesthetic work it's doing, all of it is so so powerful. I mean, the form, using form as a way to negotiate these concerns, um, and then the transfiguration of space. So we have Christ being born in America and on the cross of the South. So now the South is this kind of holy land mm -hmm. as well, where this violence is being carried out, the way that uh, there's a kind of playing with sanctity. And again, to re return to that speech that we had brought up earlier, the way that uh, Carr and the unveiling of the Silent Sam statue is talking about how this is a, the South is a holy, sacred place. Here again, on the cross of the South, the South being kind of elevated to the place where the Christ is crucified. I think that is a powerful, powerful move. Mm -hmm. So once again, we're running out of time, and it feels like we could discuss this 13-line poem for several more hours. Um, but I wanted to ask one last thing. Do you think a poem written today could have a response similar to the public's response to Christ in Alabama? So I think the poem on the page, maybe not. Yeah. I think that the status of the printed page is different than it was in 1931. I think people consume media in vastly different ways, and the digital landscape kind of has contributed to that. However, one thing that I'll put on the table, in music in particular, there have been a lot of songs, there have been a lot of albums. I think Kendrick Lamar is a great example of this, of a really vocally political aesthetic that then elicits a kind of gut response from the other side. Mm -hmm. I think that's an example of it. If it would have the same effect that something like Hughes' poem, where people were getting letters about it like years and years after, I think this is also tied into our attention spans, right. I think, in the way that things kind of have a lot of gravity for a little bit, and then they're kind of forgotten because we're scrolling past them, right. we're getting all this language. And I think this is actually tied into this bigger, uh, maybe concern of mine, of the fact that we get language too easily, and we get kind of epistemic language too easily that's trying to purport what is to us in a way that's almost, we don't have time to really metabolize or think or sit with it. Mm. So I think... Um, we're forced to consume all of these words, we're forced to consume all of this language, and then we don't really sit on it the way that maybe we get this poem in the small magazine in 1931, and we're kind of forced to like really sit with it a yeah. lot more. It has a different kind of weight. Um, I think, I think if there's anything Hughes's poetry teaches us how to do, it's to sit with poetry and with its lasting effects. Yeah, and I think that's one of the great things that can really come from the printed word, and I think that, for me, that's one of the strong commitments to poetry is the way that it forces us to slow down on our consumption and kind of it resists poetry and I think really uh, good poetry. And I'm thinking about like Wallace Stevens here. You can't really consume Wallace Stevens. You can't just like, you no. know, you need to like you. And that that's something that's so profoundly 
powerful and that has such a deep uh, impact and effect on the way that we experience and live our live our lives. So I think that's also in a way a plea for a kind of a kind of modernism as well. I think that the difficulties of modern poetry uh, force readers to kind of confront the poem, to reckon with the poem, to sit with the poem, to negotiate the poem, to think through the poem in a way that continues to be really kind of regenerative. Wayne Kostenbaum in an interview I did with him said, um, given how many bad things happen, wouldn't it be better if things didn't happen? Poetry making nothing happen is the thing it makes happen. It prevents the violence of much of what constitutes happening, which is destruction. Permitting a reader an affect of consciousness, objection, abjection, conscientious abstention through reading and then through more thoughtful actions. Mm, yeah, no, I love that. Yeah, that's spot on. Poetry making nothing happen is a thing it makes happen. So important. Yeah, totally. So important. Yeah, yeah so important. It. And for us, I think that's... Uh, yeah, one of the most relevant things I've heard, I think that's really powerful, and I think that really speaks to the need for poetry today. Yeah, that's a plea for it if I've ever heard one. Yeah, that was a really good conversation. Is there anything that you want to say? No, I think we've said a lot. Um, yeah. No, but yeah, again, thanks for having me here. Thanks for uh, making the space for us to be able to talk about these. I think that these are conversations that are not easy to have, and I think mm -hmm. that using some of the space to have these conversations is something that's really important. And I think even just spending some time with these poems, uh, making some space where space has been systematically denied, I think is a really powerful move. And hopefully, uh, hopefully in our poetry, we're making nothing happen. <laughs> yeah, thank you for bringing this to my attention. I know we met two months ago, but I've been thinking about the power of language in our contemporary society since and what my own poetic practices adding mm. to the realm of social art, uh, if anything. All art is social, I think. What do you think? Uh, I agree with that. But sometimes I think that I get a little uh, solipsistic, you know, especially when you're put in the shadow of someone like Hughes and his, you know, putting the body on the line. What did Audre Lorde say? The difference between poetry and rhetoric, rhetoric is being ready to kill yourself instead of your children. Oh, oh. <laughs> wow, yeah. That sticks with me, and uh, yeah. So what I'm what I'm doing in the world since since this huge huge discussion wow. has been uh, has been following me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Thank you for having me. Um, it's been really it's been really wonderful, really generative, and uh, yeah, it's been really. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at carolinaquarterly.com and follow us at facebook.com/carolinaquarterly and on Twitter at nc underscore quarterly. Remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening, and to be on the lookout for upcoming issues. Until next time, read well, write well, and thanks for listening.